0: For episode because then I have it's to leave somewhere. it in and there's, you know, there's a fraction of a second worth of content uh, it is confusing. and it takes up storage yeah. space on my computer. So anyway, might as well start <sighs> off talking about something boring. You got a tall beer there.
1: It's not even like a full Gansett.
0: Mm. Get free there a tall beer. What? Oh. It's from Django.
1: Yeah. I, I, I you re- won
0: your Mandingo fight and now you deserve it. Okay. That's all I'm trying to say
1: is that is that what we're calling returning to the workforce being bored all day
0: yeah yeah i gotta tell you i'm getting pretty depressed over here (laughs) why because i don't have anyone to talk to (laughs) and i forgot about that Mm. and now i'm doing the thing uh that is classic where i don't talk to anyone all day Mm -hmm. and then we jump on here i didn't talk to anybody all day either oh that's true you're locked in a basement i'm locked in here Uh uh-huh you're locked in here with me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's our listeners, actually.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: I'm Rorschach, and Will's the guy that gets burnt with hot oil.
1: Moloch? <laughs> no. I'm I
0: talking about know. the cafeteria scene, man. Come on. I don't our know. listeners know. You don't know. I don't remember things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't remember things. You like haven't seen stuff? Watchmen uh, a thousand times? just By proxy. By proxy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Never the whole way through. Is that true? You never finished that no, movie? I've seen it, yeah. Oh, why why th- did you lie about it? That I was saw really the one, weird. But I saw
1: the one with the fucking pirate. Ship.
0: Yeah, you saw the extra long version, the ultimate cut, where there's Real hard to pay attention anime to pirates yeah. in the middle of it.
1: It's so hard to pay attention with that. Yeah, one.
0: I have to admit, that's not the best cut. I'm a big fan of the director's cut, which doesn't have the animated <gasps> pirates, but does have some additional scenes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it's not at I all. was going <laughs> to... That was, that was fill-
1: we, there are some words in the English language called filler words. Um, That was one of them.
0: This week we're talking Zack Snyder's Watchmen. Oh, good. A notoriously derided movie.
1: Yeah, no one likes that movie.
0: No, it's it's too bad. It's actually, as far as Zack Snyder goes, it's one of his better ones. He's not a very good filmmaker.
1: We're not going to talk about the you know more prescient uh, TV version of Watchmen to our current. We situation. talked about
0: that on an old episode. Like, briefly? I, yeah. I don't know. I might have cut it out because it's hard to talk about things like that. You and yeah. I are not very good about laying out stories and not going on tangents.
1: Oh, yeah. Impossible.
0: So, describing, like, a complicated-ish show with any clarity mm. and then also delivering opinion about it. I don't know. Go back in the list. Somewhere in the first 10 episodes, I think. Because that came out, like, oh, maybe later. But that came out in, like, October? It was October? around the,
1: like, West Coast show so yeah yeah yeah
0: that's way back when
1: oh am i gonna sneeze hold on
0: mind over matter you don't have to do it well it might be hmm yeah i don't think so you didn't even actually end up sneezing i know
1: i I suppressed it Mm. much like many things in my life i can push it down deep 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 deep
0: no that's good that's a sign of a firm mental command and control unlike donald trump did you see the personality test thing what He, You know, he did that interview with Chris Wallace. I'm sorry that I'm talking about this already, but we're at a serious uh, lack of content (laughs) at minute four (laughs) of this episode, so I might as well go into it. You you saw that he gave an interview with Chris Wallace, right? It was very funny. It was bad. Yeah. Did you see the interview? No. Did you read it? No. No. Okay. It was very funny. It was,
1: you know, on top of current events.
0: It was pretty classic Donald Trump, you know, but, uh. You know, the libs went crazy for it because they were like, oh, Chris Wallace, you know, it's a hard hitting interview. And it's like, oh, you guys love him now, too? Just anybody. they, <sighs> You know, is this
1: the kind of thing of the like those like uh, what the fuck are they called? It's a kind of rep- it's like a no never Trump Republican. But then they like the Democrats hired this ad
0: service that was formerly all right wing dudes. I think you're talking about the Lincoln Project. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is pretty much that. I mean, you know, the never-Trump Republicans were the first to come into the liberal huh. fold, but now they'll just accept anybody. John Bolton writes a book, oh, he's a good guy now. George W. Bush, Chris Wallace, whoever. Huh. Anyway, All right. uh, there was a very hilarious moment in that interview where Donald Trump was bragging about passing a cognitive exam that he took two years ago, by the way. Not like he took it yesterday, and for whatever reason it came up. Hmm. And Chris Wallace is like, yeah, I took the same test too. It's not very hard. And Donald Trump's like, uh, you you know you could never answer the last five questions of the exam. I guarantee you, you couldn't. They're too hard. They're too hard for you, you know. And Chris Wallace is like, what were one the fu- of the questions was asking you to count down from a hundred by seven. And Donald Trump's like deflects and he's like ninety three, and he actually starts doing it. <laughs> I don't
1: know if I could do that. To be perfectly oh, honest. Oh come
0: on, dude! What are you fucking? It's kind of hard. Now uh, later on on a podcast, I heard the actual questions that mm-hmm. was one of them and they don't even ask you to count all the way down from 100 by 7 you only have to count down the first 3 numbers huh yeah and the other the other questions were things like which animal is this and it's like a line drawing of a rhino or a picture of a clock with no numbers on it and it's like what time does this clock read and that's what our very stable so genius So that's was like proud something of.
1: that you take in like second grade
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like the the Ohio
1: uh, yeah, the Iowa Aptitude Test or whatever. Yeah, do you remember I, those things?
0: Uh, very vaguely, but yes. It I was mean, just
1: like, "Are you a moron?" Maybe.
0: You know, I. Th- it's just a. It's yes. It's a placement exam for elementary school kids. Do we need to put you in the special zone? Yeah. Are you in the regular zone, or do you go to honors, or can you just kick ass at taking tests? You he, will's raising his hand uh, for some reason. Mm, I was going to say I find that hard to believe, but actually... No, it tracks. That seems mostly yeah. in your zone. Like, your aptitude would be for, like, not having to talk to another person, but dealing with a piece of paper and some words. Mm. Like, are you good at IQ tests? What? Have I... you ever taken an IQ test? No. Oh, okay. Those are very puzzle-based. You know, They're like...
1: puzzly, but they're also, like, timed, and I don't like the timed ones, because sometimes I'm like, I'm right, but it's not here, and I get confused. Oh, I
0: don't know. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the IQ tests are timed, and the faster you do it, the better. I think that's how the Mensa one works. Uh Oh. I used to fantasize about being in Mensa. Why? So I would take that test, but I could never do well enough on it. Do you get, a badge or something? No, it's just a thing you can brag about to people. Hmm. It really is for douchebags only. I mean, if you were truly, like, intelligent, it would be beneath you.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like something you wouldn't want to tell people that you did
0: And it's only for telling people. Uh It really serves no other purpose other than that. I think they have Mensa conferences and stuff where people go and you get to, like, have a cocktail party with other pretentious assholes. That's most cocktail parties anyway. Doesn't sound that bad.
1: Yeah. If you have to put on, like, real pants to go to a cocktail party, that is just an asshole
0: brigade. Is there such a thing as a cocktail party that you don't have to put on pants for? Real pants, like dressing up. Like, if you can be schlubby, that's just drinks. I think any more, the more you dress down, it's kind of a power move. Like, billionaires, like, you know, like, Bezos and, like, the Silicon Valley people, they're just wearing, like, fleeces and sweatpants. Think about Jeffrey Epstein. He just wore sweats all the time. In public, not in public, you know.
1: Well, you saw the picture of Mark Zuckerberg surfing, right? Yes, that picture is awesome
0: and very funny. With his,
1: you know, zinked out face and huge caboose
0: the uh best memeification of of it that i've seen thus far is the scene from the dark night where heath ledger's joker oh yeah. has got his head out of the cop car
1: i actually took a screenshot of it and i was gonna send it to you to be like have you seen this yeah
0: it was pretty great yeah uh other than that it's been mostly just people reposting that picture because honestly it does kind of just stand alone as an uncanny like horrible uh indictment of our culture and society. I'm surprised you haven't painted it yet. Maybe I will. I don't know. Just like do something with his face then? Zuck is not as interesting to me as somebody like Elon Musk or or, I don't know.
1: Sociopaths all look like sociopaths, so I don't know.
0: But Zuck is just a dork. Like he doesn't seem maniacal enough to be interesting. He just kind of stumbled into his thing and now he's like surfing. It's like, all right, dude, whatever. You're just some dweeb. He's surfing while going
1: like, I'm taking all of your information.
0: Yeah, which is fine, but it's like I don't even think he set out to do that. He legitimately just wanted Mm. to like spite some people he was going to school with, and you know, I don't know,
1: like fuck the Winklevoss twins. Yeah, exactly,
0: and like Mm. have a website to lord over other people. I think he just has a real inferiority complex, and now he's got everything that anyone could ever want, and he's just deeply miserable. Whereas Elon Musk, I don't think is miserable. I think he's just like kind of Kanye-ish in that he's a little (sighs) psychotic, which is good. That's how you know. Powerful people should be eccentrics. Then they're interesting. Does
1: he think Harriet Tubman was bad too?
0: Did Kanye say that Harriet
1: Tubman was bad? Did you not see his presidential address in North Carolina where he didn't even uh, register to be on the ballot?
0: To tell you the truth, I didn't see the whole thing. I saw a couple clips from it and then I read a thing about it. Uh, I think yeah, that's he all was... you need
1: to do. Yeah,
0: I, I mean Kanye's whatever, dude. I don't know. Like, I don't even think anybody's talking about this because it's so obvious that it's just a publicity thing for his album. Like, it's like a public breakdown. Maybe he'll run in twenty twenty four, but who cares? I don't know. It's it's not a serious. It's thing.
1: Cl- it's akin to like Michael Jackson holding the like baby out the window. We're like, dude, what are you doing?
0: It's obvious. Well, I mean, it's it's different than that. I mean, it's similar in mm-hmm. that they're both having like manic episodes. Yeah, you know, sure. Uh, same thing happens to Elon Musk. He goes on Joe Rogan and smokes a blunt in a manic episode or like right after he has his baby, he goes and talks to him like, you know, these crazy manic
1: episodes. Those are designed to manipulate the market. though.
0: <laughs> That's yeah. A well, different. you know, it, he, Elon Musk uses his manic episodes to mani- n- manipulate the stock market. Yeah. And Kanye uses his to promote his albums. I mean, it's this exact same tactic. <sighs> really, it's the same thing when you think about it. OK, but it's much more interesting than Mark Zuckerberg. He doesn't do shit.
1: Yeah, but he's got that that juicy peach, though.
0: I really don't think that was the point of the photograph, you know?
1: It's part of the point.
0: <laughs> it's really more that he looks like a 1920s mime.
1: Yeah, he's got some depression clown makeup going with that That much. Uh...
0: It's really, truly, it's awful. I mean, you're a person from the islands of, of fair complexion. Do you ever slather your face with so much sunscreen?
1: I probably should. Do I, though? No, half the time I miss one portion of my body that turns the color of your microphone foam.
0: Mm -hmm. My microphone foam is bright red, brighter than a lobster.
1: Yeah. Brighter than a cooked lobster. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a good distinction. Most of them are pretty brown. Um. No, I mean, yeah, no, you don't do that unless you're like, you do that to like babies, maybe.
0: Yeah, I feel like I've only seen babies do that.
1: Or, like, if you're a lifeguard and they do the, like, zinc strip down the nose.
0: I've never understood that. Do you know what the functionality of that is? I always thought that might have been more, like, e- the same reason that baseball players put the black streak under their eyes to, like, get the, the light out of your eyes. That wouldn't work
1: with white zinc. It would just bounce it right into your eyes.
0: Well, then why do they do that, then? Because is that just old school sunscreen and it's sort of a holdover from an era Yeah, zinc that is doesn't like, exist anymore? zinc
1: is, like, full blockage. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um... But that was always like a caricature, like you'd see it in like 1960s movies where it's like, you know, either the nerd or the lifeguard has the zinc strips.
0: Oh, for sure. I know what you're talking about. It's just I, ne- I never understood the utility of
1: it. Yeah. It's to be like, oh, you know, it's usually like, I'm so tan. I can't get any
0: more tan, bro. Or it's like,
1: I'm so pale. I can't get any sun. Oh. Mm-hmm.
0: It's just interesting to do it in one spot like that because you're just going to end up with a mad tan line right there now.
1: I've never seen it IRL.
0: Oh, okay. I feel like even when we were growing up, that was still a thing. I have vague memories of like being at public pools and seeing the lifeguard like that.
1: I've never seen that ever. See, my experience at places is with the uh, Banana Boat 4 SPF, the
0: oil. Uh, Explain. I don't know what you're talking about.
1: It's a brown bottle. comes in a brown bottle.
0: Yeah, is 4 SPF high or low, I guess is my question. Wait, for real? Yeah, is that low? That's low. Yeah. Then why why do you have experience with this?
1: That's what I would see people would put on. Like, it would never be in the overprotective. It would be in the, well, I want to kind of mostly burn. Oh, okay. Hmm. But I want to look like a greased chicken. Yeah. So, I used to do that as a youth. I would lay out in the backyard with the 4% and then just burn like a motherfucker.
0: You pretty much still do that. Your strategy is to go to the beach without applying sunscreen, walk all the way out there, which at our beach is a sizable distance, mm-hmm. Uh Spray yourself down with completely useless aerosol sunscreen. Uh-huh. Immediately go swimming.
1: I've, I've flipped the order of operations. I just go in uh-huh. and then apply while drying.
0: E- okay, but nonetheless, I mean, you're talking about a full hour, hour. by that time before yeah. you even put it on at all. At which point, why do it? Yeah, and can. then you do it in the most ineffectual way possible. So that it looks like somebody sprayed graffiti all over you.
1: <laughs> yeah, you got to get the brazing in. You got to brown the outside, and then you can do some low and slow. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. C- it's cooking. It's a yeah. cooking thing.
0: Okay. Uh huh. Can you smell yourself chemically evaporating? I
1: mean, depends if I had bacon that day. Yeah, <laughs> you can just oh, be God. like, mmm, the sizzle. Oh man. Yeah, my brain is uh. Well, what else you got? Yeah. <laughs> my brain's not very operational. It's gonna be a sick episode, guys.
0: Just buckle up, buckle right up. That was well, do you want to talk about about thirteen minutes that we can't really use? Okay. So, do you
1: want to talk about Gene Wilder? Because that's a, that that is, as the kids say, fire.
0: What happened to Gene Wilder?
1: You made a painting with Gene Wilder.
0: Oh yeah, that I knew. I thought I thought he died of COVID or something. No, he died a long time ago. He been done. What it. am I thinking about? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean we can try, but you know, art is hard to talk about. Oh yeah, as we've. Oh yeah you know I'm willing to try though. Do you have questions for me this it would be helpful if you actually did your job on the show and had thoughts and tried to lead the conversation <laughs> occasionally
1: i mean it's it's an interesting juxtaposition because i I'm assuming hold on, we have some furniture droppage oh telephono um all right, so you made a you made a picture yeah it's it's two pictures, two panels, one panel.
0: It's two panels. Yeah. Two
1: panels. One panel. Scene of the the terror the terror dome, the terror uh, river in Willy Wonka. And then the other side is in color, which is that red like garish like going to give you nightmares kind of situation.
0: Yeah, it's a very um it's sort of like a lot of different gel filters and then with that Technicolor tone of the film. It's very red and orange and I green.
1: think they threw that like oil kaleidoscope yeah i think it was a
0: little bit of uh what's that called that andy warhol thing
1: oh the like exploding plastic yeah exploding plastic
0: inevitable think that kind of lighting
1: yeah it's it's basically that scene in Mad Men where they're in that warehouse and the guy with the the vest the white vest and the no shirt underneath is like this is art it's a photo like anyone okay bueller um so it's that scene and then on the other side it's black and white which i'm guessing is a fam picture
0: yeah, it's a family photo of my sister and I with my grandmother in front of um, Treasure Island in Las Vegas some sometime in the early 90s. Hmm. So prior to the Vegas that everybody knows now, sort of. And mm-hmm. real quick, I just want to throw everybody to Instagram real quick. If you follow me on Instagram, you can see this painting. There you it's go. my most recent post so that uh, there's at least some context for this. Yeah,
1: you can find it. Yeah, um, Yeah. so is Grandma taking you on the boat to, to Scaryland? Like, what's going on?
0: Well, the thing about the thing about that painting that's kind of interesting is that I finished that um, black and white panel, the family photo with my grandmother, uh, way before coronavirus. I finished mm-hmm. that in like maybe early February or something. I don't know. Okay. And the second panel was blank for the longest time because I didn't work on anything until really recently. Yeah. Um. So I don't know if that's relevant to the content of the painting necessarily, but I did have a totally separate image in mind for the second panel initially that i just kind of abandoned. Hmm. Um
1: but it's sequentially the, thing, the first panel.
0: Uh from left to right. No, it's not. It's the se- it's the second panel. It's on the right of the painting. So if if you're thinking about it as in reading in the English language Gene Wilder it, Gene Wilder's first. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Gene Wilder's the first panel and the panel i finished first is the second panel.
1: Okay, that's why i was yeah. i was like, what?
0: um so how'd you get how'd you get on the boat how'd you get to the the ride um you know it's actually it was actually really simple i I watched um red letter media a youtube channel that i really like did a review of uh charlie charlie and the chocolate factory or rather woolly wonka and the chocolate factory because charlie and the chocolate factory is the shitty johnny depp one
1: that's a different horror movie.
0: Um, and they were talking a lot about the production of that movie. Uh, and so, I don't know. I was just thinking about it because I had watched that. And I was reminded of that scene. Because I haven't seen the movie in a really long time. I mean, it's a kid's movie, right? Like, it's, I don't remember the last time I re-watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's kind of a kid's movie. It's really well, it's, it's from another It's from another era where they weren't afraid in kid's movies to do things that were scary. So I guess if you're asking about like that scene or whatever, what I what I think is attractive about the scene in the tunnel is that it's legitimately frightening and ambiguous. Like at that point in the movie, you don't know how to trust Willy Wonka or whether or not to, because the way that Gene Wilder plays the character is just right on the money in, in terms of being fully sarcastic at all times, but it's. Right on the line of maybe he's serious and he's saying a lot of dark jokes, you know, so by that moment when he takes everybody on the boat and you finally get to see like the rest of the the factory, you don't really know what's going to happen to them. That's after Augustus falls in the chocolate river, right? I'm not sure, but I don't think so. I think all the kids are there at that point, but I might be huh. wrong. I might be wrong but the same but the same principle the same principle still holds is that like you you're not sure whether this is a dangerous situation, whether it's fanciful, whether he's sadistic or gentle like and Wilder's performance is a huge part of that yeah, but I just really like that scene because it's like I said before it's just you know legitimately like psychedelic and frightening it's not comfortable mm-hmm um and so I already had the family photo going. Um and I'm not sure why I thought the pairing of them would be good. I think at some point uh just to be clear, the Willy Wonka panel is is shown three times on a single canvas. It's like it's like cells of a Yeah, it like sort film of looks reel. like film going by, uh or it's just like a w- sort of Warhol-esque thing where it's like a triple Wonka. It's exactly <coughs> the same picture three Title times. Title of that. Um and I don't know how I arrived at that either. I think it was just an interesting formal solution. Like oh, the technique that I use is this sort of flatbed, like very liquidy paint. So all the shapes in it just kind of become their own abstract elements anyway. Mm. And I've found in past paintings that when I combine the same image on the same canvas without a sharp border, meaning I don't tape the edge or whatever, you kind of get an overall effect where they all bleed into each yeah. other. And it, it's a more simultaneous image
1: it's got some mushiness
0: so once i decided i was going to do that it seemed like pretty natural to pair it with the other image because there's a series of skulls in the family photo and then my grandma's face and then my face and my sister's face so there's the same triple repetition right down the middle of heads so you get three wonka heads on the left right down the middle and then you get a skull my grandma's head my sister's head right down the middle and just the thematic similarity between like something from my childhood personally and then something from childhood generally the Wonka mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. Um, and one of them being like frightening and ambiguous. And then the other one, and you know, sort of lurid and like it's painted in day, in day glow underpaint, And yeah. you know, it's a very garish sort of scary thing on the left. And then on the other side, uh, the images in black and white. And so I was thinking of it like this image from my own past is something that you think about in black and white terms. It's only wholesome. It's only like a nice memory yet. There's the specters of these skulls right behind my grandma. She's dead. Um, You know, so you're, you're thinking about one version of what's coming in the Willy Wonka painting, you Mm -hmm. know, they're going somewhere. So you can think of that as the future panel and then the black and white panel as a past panel.
1: What is it? Something's churning fire burning.
0: Uh, What's the line going? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the title of the painting is No Earthly Way of Knowing, because that's a oh, lyric that's from yeah. the same song. Um, no Earthly Way of Knowing, which direction we are going. Oh, the yeah. rowers keep on rowing and something, something, something. I don't remember yeah. all the lyrics, but. Um, so I thought it was interesting because both both panels both panels are references to the past, literally and figuratively, but one is moving into a space and one is always distant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's going on in the background of Wonka is forward, and what's going on in the background of my family photo is always past.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. The triple—I don't know—something about triples. He love the repetition. and I never understand that particular like Wonka vision moment. Is like that's the point where his eyes are wiliest because he's looking at all the all the families going like. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, again, I said it before, but it's like Wilder's performance in that movie is pretty magisterial in the way that he plays it. I mean, he gets that sort of wily craziness, but he never slips over into insanity. It's never deranged. No, Uh, which is a hard thing to play. And that, that is one of the best reasons for picking that image is that's the iconic image of that character in some ways. I think you could think of the iconic scene being the, the beginning one where he um comes out with his Buttercup. cane and he's sort of creeping slowly. And then he does oh. the somersault because that's the reveal of, you don't know what the lie is or what the truth is, oh. you know, hmm. with, with Wonka. Um, but it doesn't get like sadistic until that moment of psychedelia. Um, As far as the repetition goes, like i said before it's mostly just a formal decision i like the way that the the brushstrokes can just interlock without a border between them and it's also just a sort of cinematic thing like um it does sort of appear as a film reel that's skipping or something like that you know like mm. how in tarantino movies or like in death proof in particular there's like uh, intentional moments of skipping film i never saw that movie. Uh, Well, you know, but you get what I'm saying is that, you know, because those old grindhouse movies in the 70s, like the reels would just fuck up. So he inserted that intentionally into Mm -hmm. his grindhouse movie. I think it has a similar function in a painting, especially when it's already a reference to a film Hmm. that uh, it sort of throws you back into the image. The flatness of having no boundary between the images does that. And then the way that you read it from top to bottom in this case does the same thing. You sort of get two whole images a half image and then you're back at the top and it is sort of about like um reliving something i mean that's what the whole painting is sort of about in a way well the
1: tunnel was always a matter of like are we in the past are we in the you know right it's, you're it's in a, a liminal, time
0: warp. you're in a liminal space in the tunnel yeah yeah
1: it's a it's a cuz uh, how how far did they actually go do you think like maybe a foot
0: yeah that's what i always imagined in the movie it seems like they go like 5 feet
1: yeah, it's not actually far, because they're like, oh my god, and it's like, oh yeah, well, we're here, and everybody feel good? Great. Um, I think it is pre pre-the German falling into the river.
0: Yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure it's it's an establishing scene in a way, and that you get to the rest of the factory through that scene.
1: Yeah, I can't remember, yeah. Hmm.
0: Uh, because he brings them in, and there's the tiny... There's, like, the uh, weird hallway where it goes from looking normal size to being really tiny on the other end, and then it opens into the big, iconic room with all the gumdrop trees and the chocolate river and stuff like this. Oh. And that's the only room they see initially, and so it's all very happy. And then they get in the boat to see the rest of the factory. Oh. Then and that's when everything starts to go awry.
1: Oh, that no, Gloop hits it before they even get on the boat then.
0: Well, he drinks from it, but I don't think he falls in it. No, he falls in it. Oh, okay, all right
1: but that's what i mean in terms of establishing what happens first. It's like then you do the like bi- biographical photo contrast you're like, well what happened before? That causes the like the looking back.
0: I guess i see what you're saying by gloop having been compromised you set up some stakes that mm-hmm. this is not necessarily safe or whatever. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, i mean i'm not really i'm not really sure what to say about that because the the impulse for me in making a painting like that is just so organic it just makes sense or it doesn't make sense I d- I don't have like a really um i don't have a really strict criteria for selecting or combining anything except that I just know that it will work and then I think about it later yeah that's fair so every everything that I've been saying about the painting so far is things that I thought about while making it or after making it not really um not really in the process of selection. Like I I guess in mentioning that one of the panels was pre coronavirus and the other one wasn't, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think the Wonka scene is also something like that. Like it's also a
1: time uh, uh, well, a it's cinematic time go- where time stops. It's about
0: going forward into somewhere that you don't know what. Yeah. And it's and it seems sinister for now but it could turn out to be really innocent or something like that. And I, and I'm not like offering that as a historical analysis. I don't think that that's true, but th- there's like something about the uncanny feeling of that scene that and the liminal nature of it. Yeah.
1: I see it as this kind of, I'm just wondering about this, like, cause you even said something about the black and white always in the river. It's a matter of like looking back is dangerous. Cause when you're two things, like if you look back in the thing and you see the skull, potentially scary memento mori remind you that we're all dead um if you look back in the boat i'm gonna have this grizzled ass german boy who is getting a little fatty like you can't look back in the in the tunnel
0: you know yeah well you can't look back in the tunnel because it's disorienting it's not even clear which direction you're going you could be going up or down or diagonally like you, you know it's just disorienting there is really no um there is nothing but the future in that moment direction doesn't matter yeah. You're just going to the next place. Um, in terms of the other picture, like what I think about the past, it's not that the past is dangerous. No, it's it's just that it, it always it always uh, reads in a monochrome way. You get a simple idea of what the past is like. But that's what I mean. Where the danger lies. Yeah, but it, it lies ahead. Mm-hmm. Or in the present, it never lies in the past. You, in fact, you can't really know anything about the past. It's fundamentally unknowable. You, you're always retelling yourself well, a story. That's what
1: I'm it. saying. Like memory is slippery. So, like how you remember the past is colored by so many pitfalls of your own, like un- misunderstanding of it.
0: Um, may maybe
1: so. Like you could remember something like, that is absolutely not what happened. Like you know, like your indexes, your the personal index is flawed, right? Like, it can never, like, unless it's just the nature of human memory and experience. Like, your experience is colored by you or desaturated by you. Yeah, yeah, right. So, like, whether you suck the color out in the life of it out of it or not, it's a matter of what that day could have had, you know, any day in memory is fraught with all sorts of
0: things well i think one of the you know i'm with you i guess i uh, but what it's making me think is that one of the reasons that i was attracted to using that image of my family in the painting at all was that i don't remember that day to me it's just a photograph it could it, it, it's almost anonymous in a certain way if it wasn't for the three faces in it um i have no connection to it really at all i don't mm-hmm. remember going to treasure island i don't remember doing that mm-hmm. uh, you know um and that's what was fascinating. About about The picture was looking back on it and seeing all the skulls in the background and thinking about how well amongst my family or the people that do remember that day. It's probably a really wholesome thing. But when I see it and I just see a grandmother with two children at Treasure Island, it's like this is from the most garbage strain of American culture. Like it, it's a, it's a really iconic thing to have a connection to Las Vegas. Like this inhabits my work and my mind all the time. Is mm-hmm. that like. Basically having the heart of your being lie in the simulation in the middle of the desert is like a really, um, it's a profoundly American thing. And I'm tempted to say it's an empty thing, but I really don't think it is. It's just that it is dark. And when I look back on it and I'm like, wow, this is just some cheap plastic fantasy that I was inhabiting. And it's also like fraught with, um, like you said, the uh, Memento Mori. And it functions that way literally and figuratively, but it's like that. I think I think when I choose family photo imagery, I'm always self conscious about it because it's a cheap device in a way. Because you, you you know, you automatically get some sentiment out of using something personal. And I think that's like sort of cheap in a painting to do that. Um but I try to use images when when I do that that are interesting to me as anonymous images, like as photographs. Like if I, I think if I found that picture at a thrift store I would have been just as attracted to it Mm -hmm. as if I was in it. Yeah. Of course it adds something that I'm in it, but it's like, you know, I have a chief Wahoo hat on and like the whole language around that has changed. Uh, That particular area probably doesn't even really exist anymore. Like Treasure Island is there, but it's not there. All the skulls, the way they line up with the picture, Hmm. how they're not supposed to be meaningful, but like, you could make an assumption that a woman of that age would be dead anyway. Like Mm -hmm. all of the same read that I provided a few minutes ago, I think I would have seen anyway. Hmm. So when I pick those really personal images, I'm trying to look at them as if they're not about me.
1: Well, they kind of aren't. And that's what I mean in terms of like,
0: well, I always imagine like, especially from a viewer's perspective, if you don't know what I look like or you, uh, or it's some point in the distant future and somebody stumbles across that painting, it's not going to have any meaning on that level. So you, you have to look at it anonymously.
1: Well, the way that you like do the black and white where you're in it is like in the, has that kind of like faded Christian Boltanski, like look at this small child kind of look like they're all just vaguely ghastly. Yeah. You know,
0: well, the, the way that they're painted in my technique, too, is like everybody comes out looking like a mask sort of because the, the nature of the paint just sort of it's meant to use the architecture of a of a photograph to make something sort of flat and abstract. So there's the precision of a traced drawing, yet none of the brushwork has like any correlation to the light and shadow other than its value or color. Mm. Um, so everything kind of flattens out and yeah, everything looks weird. It, 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 my idea with those type of things is that it it looks like looking in a puddle or something. It's not quite exactly that because it's not distorted to the same degree. Claude mirror. But it's sort of that, it's sort of an analogy for that in paint. Like it could just go back to being liquid. Hmm. I mean, I got the yeah. idea in mm-hmm. the first place from uh, looking at the Jasper Johns works that are ink on plastic. And he does it to a much better degree where, things get even more abstract and still somehow maintain Aren't their image wax? form. Um, well, the new ones are water-based and caustic, which I don't even know what that means or how you do yeah. that. But uh, no, in the past, they were usually just ink on like, acetate. Hmm. Um, but he sort of figured out in a much more profound way how to m- make something sort of hold together. And, and it reminds me of... Um, I would imagine that Jasper Johns got that idea from sort of the state between dreaming and being awake. And I'm trying to reference like a similar thing where it's that space one second after you wake up where the dream is still charged and really present and then you get out of bed and it's forgotten, you know. Hmm. And I'm just sort of coming at it from a different trajectory where the brushwork and stuff is a lot more plastic, like more influenced by like uh, somebody like David Reed. Or like Ross Blechner yeah. or, or one of these people where the idea was that you take, the, you take the charge out of the singular gesture and you make it into a simulation. So it's, it's this sort of combination, I think, between a really earnest idea of how to um, illustrate a liminal space that's slipping away and then also how to make that, um, make that synthetic so that's not even really yours. It's not a real dream. It's one that you think that you had.
1: Well, yeah. Do you ever do the thing where you're like having a really intense dream and then your alarm goes off and you're like, no, no, I'm not done. I'm I'm still like running away from something or like, you know, we're, we're doing action and you're like, okay, snooze. And then, all right, where were we? And then you try to talk your brain into doing the thing again and it doesn't work.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I just did that the other, the other morning, as a matter of fact. And I, Right now, I couldn't tell you what the dream was, but I hit my snooze multiple times to get back to the dream and it worked. I remember being in the dream for three or four more like 20 minute cycles. Sometimes it works. It's and very it, rare, but yeah. It, it really worked. And I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how to explain that, but like it, that is some sort of contact between. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be really cheesy, but that is some sort of contact between a, an immaterial world. That's a contact with another place that has nothing to do with the, like, firm reality that you're in. And I think it says a lot about, like, what the human mind is capable of. It's also your subconscious just going like, yeah, I'll keep going. Well, the idea that you can get in, in contact with it again intentionally is interesting. It would be one thing if if there was no such thing as lucid dreaming or no, or no such thing mm-hmm. as as hitting your snooze and getting back to the same dream, but there is. Um, I think art is like a, is in its best form is sort of a similar thing, or or you're trying to like make a, a again like a synthetic version of that experience.
1: Yeah. Well, that's like. Remember, I told you like at the start of COVID, I had like a terrible like actual nightmare and like was like upset for a whole day. I did the same thing of like going, trying to go back to sleep to try and reframe the thing so I wasn't in a state. Yeah. It didn't work. But I don't know. It's the strange thing where you try to grapple with what, you know, what synapses are firing that you don't have control over. And you're like, come on. Like you're pulling the like lawnmower engine to be like, let's go back there and actually resolve this because this is not going to work for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is that you can't really will it. There's a difference yeah. between like w- wanting to be able to do it, desiring to be able to do it and having that happen and trying to will yourself back into that place. I don't think that's yeah. possible because the the moment you have enough intention to will something, you're firmly planted in material reality again. Yeah. You have to be sort of halfway in between, which is a great like analogy for the artistic process too. Um I said, you know, twenty minutes ago or whatever that like I have no idea why I think a picture will work with another picture until during or after or both. And that's mm-hmm. sort of that's sort of a similar thing. Like you're you're not I'm not willing the content of a painting into being, you just sort of impulsively chase it or intuitively chase it as maybe better. And then it either works or it doesn't. The more experience you get as an artist, it has a tendency in my opinion to work more and more frequently. I don't trash paintings very often anymore. I think that's what having like a refined or developed intuition it ultimately ends up doing is that you don't have to know anymore consciously why something will work, but it works. Sometimes it doesn't work. No, of course. Of course. Sometimes it doesn't work. I don't know. In the example of this painting, like it, it again, I, I don't know. Like I I want to explore with you a little bit if you have any thoughts on this, like pre and post COVID seems important, but I can't put I can't wrap my head around Why? and maybe that's not there as an objective matter for viewers it's probably not um but that's an interesting component of it to me that like i had a whole i had a whole plan and i just you know this happened and i didn't feel like that was right anymore i went through a long period of inaction and then suddenly was like oh this is exactly right for it but it took on extra significance in that you, you know, there's not that many... There's not going to be that many paintings out there that were worked on for that long of a time that have the literal distinction of having one panel be pre and one panel be post. I think it's just kind of interesting. I, I, I don't know if it'll... Again, like, I don't know if it'll communicate to a viewer, but there will be, like, this sort of latent charge, this valence that's in it uh, without you needing to know that.
1: Well, I do think... So, like... I've kind of like been watching what goes on in an art world of like people's practices and who are just like, yep, just charging on with the same shit I always do. And you're like, nothing is affecting you at all. Like, either it's full affectation, it's just like full shutdown, or it's just like, nope, just gonna keep on churning out my shit. Or it's the other kind of thing of, oh, well, fuck my practice, the world is going, I'm gonna do some other, like, you know whether that's a turn towards activism and saying fuck art, like art doesn't matter right now like whatever. Right. I think a mindful acknowledgement of a shift in the collective unconscious or con- whatever, conscious if the, if these are things. Like being aware of and choosing to engage it and bring it in versus like it's either or not simultaneous. Yeah is a useful thing. I don't necessarily think, cause like the whole, when you said like, oh, I had a plan and then it was perfect and then things change. It's like, yeah. So like, that's the state of the world,
0: right? Uh, well, the yes. But the thing that I never said was that the plan was perfect. What's interesting to me is actually I ended up making a much better painting than the plan that I had for it. Oh. I'm, I'm sure of that. Yeah. Um, it just didn't, yeah, it didn't, it didn't feel right to go to the same place, uh, and not acknowledge, which is what you're saying. Yeah. I I think what happens a lot with like a lot of the artists that just kind of kept on trucking and just do their same shit. And that's not to say that I'm not doing the same shit or you're not doing the same shit. Like stylistically it's, it's well within my territory. It's not like uh, some profound breakthrough or whatever, but on a content level, maybe it is, but the people that are just doing what they've always been doing and continue to do it. Well, that's how you can tell that they're not um, really artists and that they're mostly just projecting and like pathologizing their own art into a kind of habit um whether that's like for purely commercial ends which is sometimes true but to give people the benefit of the doubt i think it's more just like having a blankie or like a stuffed animal like a thing that they need to compulsively do but not a thing that has very much meaning in and of itself yeah um they betray their own practices when like you can keep making like airbrushed paintings of like tables and horses or whatever <laughs> y- you know like that that's really like that never meant anything if you're able to continue that now
1: well i because like brian alfred has been doing one collage a day with colorade of like scenes from the city and i'm like This is such luck. I can't even deal with this. Why are you doing this? It's just this idea of, like, well, it's a like you said, it's a habit. I just got to keep doing it. And you're like, you actually don't have to, but, like, you know, idle hands are the devil's play thing. So, like, yeah, I guess you do have to have your hands busy, but, like, what the fuck, dude?
0: I'm sure that, like, I'm sure that there's a legitimate way to, like, steel man that position. Like, the thing that you just described to me has slightly more validity than the more vapid things I was referring to before in that at least that's sort of like, okay, we're all locked at home. I'm going to do something with humble means. I'm going to do images of the city because that's what I have access to while I am here right now. Um, okay. I mean, I don't think that's like the greatest art in the world, but I also don't really have a problem with it or anything. Hmm. I, I guess I just don't, I just, I guess I just don't think that good art or good artists do it out of habit. That's Weird it's a lot more thoughtful than a habit could ever be. Like I jewel out of habit. You know, if, if your art's on the same level of compulsion like that, you're not doing anything valuable. You're just um, afraid of being idle or something. Yeah. And be and being idle is one of the best ways to be generative. Like, I think, you know, to use the example of my painting, I think that's exactly what happened is that I needed to sort of not do anything for a long time to, complete the thought the idea of art taking any time at all i think is a major thing that's been lost like the idea that you could work on a painting in in this case for uh 8 months mm. is like is like not a, i don't think that's a thing for most people
1: eh, not anymore well maybe maybe people are like well i i picked it up i put it
0: down i picked it up i put it down i picked it up i, it up, I, put, it up, I put it down but like I think that's di- I think it's different um when you're constantly reworking something. That's not what I was doing, you know? Okay. Um you can see the gesso on both of those paintings because they were carefully considered, right? Yeah. Um I don't mean cuz there is a whole brand of artists that will just constantly rework things until they leave the studio. Yeah, there's That's a very different practice. What than I'm what talking what about talking is about. setting something aside. Yeah, me too.
1: Like yeah, setting aside is different. Like if you do some do some daubing, set it down, pick it up at, like a week later and eh, maybe maybe take some stuff out. OK, maybe eh, it's got to go sit on the rack. Uh, you know, like that's just more pro- that's just a process problem. But to actually say, like, I'm not dealing with you right now. Go sit in the corner. Yeah, that's different. I'm a big advocate for, you know, put put the put baby in can the corner. You, can you
0: describe what you think the difference is? Because that's that's what I'm struggling to articulate. I, I think I agree with you, but I want to know from you, what's the difference between having a purely like process or procedural problem and then setting something aside and never knowing when or if you'll come back to it? Oh,
1: well, I kind of do it all the time, so I don't know. Like like I have the uh, the dancing I have a, a painting with some dancing ghosts shooting. It's the ghost army uh, patch. Sure it's a little ghost with lightning from the in world war 2 they would make inflatable tanks yeah and like do disguises so it's a row of those but i don't know what's going in between them mm-hmm. so that'll be it's almost done with the ghost but now i have to like put it to the side and think a little harder about what goes in between
0: well i guess what i, I guess what i would be interested in exploring or what i'm trying to get to is the idea that it's it's I think there's a common misconception that when you set something aside like that, that you're actively thinking about that and only that. That's not what that means. And I think think you would agree with me. It's just sort of over there and one day I will figure out what matches or whatever. And, you know, that's exactly what happened to me with my painting. It happened to to be watching a YouTube video because I was bored, like triggered it. you know that's a pretty quotidian example it could be more profound than that but it doesn't have to be i think like you know i used to have this weird fantasy where i would like look in a monograph or something and you would see the dates on a painting be like 1970 to 1982 oh yeah and you'd be like how the fuck is that even possible but now with a little bit of seasoning on me yeah. I can totally understand that, that well, if you were an artist, like, I, I just don't have the luxury of knowing I'll have the same studio or whatever yeah. in 12 years. There's all, there's all this transience that we have to deal with that is a legitimate problem. Yeah. But the idea of, like, oh, I started working on it and, like, nothing occurred to me to do to it for 12 years, I could totally see that now.
1: But, like, it's it's kind of this other, let's use a food analogy, right?
0: Sure. Of course we're going to use a food analogy. It's going to have to do with mac and cheese. <sighs> no. Sorry. Sorry.
1: It's going to have to do with soup. Okay.
0: Your second favorite food.
1: <laughs> it's actually my first. but So, like, you know, you simmer something. Like, put you know, putting something down, picking it up, and, like, process-based is kind of like building a stock, right? You have a low burner, but it's always on.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: You're, you're adding the stuff to it, but all the stuff is just kind of in there. You're just kind of making sure it's got enough water and maybe throwing a little pepper in or being like, hmm, I have some other stuff. Let me... um, The put it down pick it up, put it down, pick it up is kind of like making the base for that soup. So like you have some herb tops so you put them in a freezer in the freezer bag and then yeah, one yeah. day in the future you're going to add the water and then then you can do the little magic where everything's kind of coming to a boil.
0: I think that's a ex- an exactly perfect analogy actually. Yeah.
1: Like you are collecting the parts and, you know, maybe it's a little sloppy because it's like, well, you didn't actually do an action, but you are the active process of collecting the bits yeah is the thoughtful part totally yeah because like doing the process who gives a fuck it's easy
0: yeah no i know i um i'm sorry if i'm interrupting you but like i honestly feel like that is one of the biggest impediments to good art is people that are focused on process almost primarily or in the majority because process and technique are just things that you learn and you can deploy whenever you need them. But the idea that that's like the central focus of a practice never made any sense to me. I get it. I get I get why it's enjoyable. I don't get why it's enjoyable for a viewer or stimulating for them.
1: But I also find, I don't know. It's, I get it as a generative process. If that's how your brain works, where you have to see the one plus the two, like plus the three like if you need to do that to keep going for the sequence to keep on rolling like go ahead i just kind of don't care because i i'm not gonna like do a thing and then go oh let me do this other thing like it's not gonna be a reactive measure it's gonna be a huh huh
0: well that that ki- I'm not going
1: to react to you. You're going to go sit in the corner.
0: Yeah, yeah. That well that kind of uh continuation of a sequence does make sense. I think that makes sense to everyone, but it's like there's no taste component to your own practice where you don't know where there is no hierarchy to one thing being better than another or there's no discerning quality in in deciding what to present to people it's like every step in the sequence is a worthy piece of art and that's what i reject about that is that no you do have to exercise some sort of uh element of taste in your own work and i think when you set things aside that's kind of what you're doing is saying like well i have part of this i don't have the whole thing just kind of filling it in to get something done would degrade this rather that's, than I, I don't want to use taste i want to
1: say like in the like it's an edit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I am talking about editing, but what does that have to do with fundamentally?
1: But what I'm saying is like doing the thing and then just kind of like, mm, or even the idea of like the old school wiping out or whatever. I'm like, I don't need anyone to see. Like, I want a full edit, cut, cut the scene, take it out. Well, so
0: if we just don't have the scene because I didn't touch it, that's a good edit for me. It just means you haven't shot it yet. It doesn't. You're not even on to editing. But editing has everything to do with taste. Hmm. It has formal implications too, because like in cinematic terms, you're talking about setting the pacing and the tone of a movie through the editing, but you're doing the same thing in the oeuvre of an art practice. And if you never have any cuts at all, if it's just an an unbroken string of shots, like, yeah, that could be sort of like an Andy Warhol sleep style movie, but that's not, um, good. That's not discerning, um. And I think like Alan is a really good example of a process-based artist that also know- has taste and knows when to edit yeah. because he uses the wipe out technique. He knows when things are Have not, gone awry are not suitable for his own standards. Yeah, I mean, for, know, I, for me, taste real quick. T- taste trips people up, but like it's only because it's gone out of fashion. But really, what you're just talking about is having standards, and the idea of yeah. having standards at all is something that nobody you know people can't hack it anymore the idea of having standards is colonial or the idea of having standards is Mm. exclusionary and like you don't want to do that to yourself most of all but in fact you do want to do that to yourself most of all things should be better or worse in your own practice to you
1: i mean i just want to clarify like i want my cuts
0: to not look like cuts I want the
1: editing to be seamless.
0: But I want the cuts. Nobody knows what's left on the cutting room floor unless you put out a DVD with bonus extras or whatever, which is ultimately, like, for people that, just for example, people that are primarily painters, that's what drawings are. What are those? Drawings are bonus material. I don't know how to do those, though. I don't really know how to do them either. I mean, I I do them every once in a while for ideation or whatever, but... Those are the Photoshop mock-ups. And the, like...
1: You know, whatever, I don't
0: know. You, whatever, whatever it is for your own individual practice. I think people have this kind of material that's interesting to see as a supplement, but it's not the primary thing. Hmm. And yeah, I think I think the idea of making your e- edits invisible is good at all times, whether that means cutting up a painting or whether that means setting one aside or um, changing it very l- literally in the moment. I mean, yeah, you should be able to do that. But are you a fan of the idea of kill your darlings? Uh, explain what that means
1: it's a writer trope where you're like if you love something you have to take it out of the thing because you're going to fixate a whole narrative around this one thing that you're attached to but the story's going to suck
0: uh yes yeah I'm Uh,
1: i'm a huge fan of the idea
0: it took me a really long time to learn that in my own practice i think i spent many many years um basically building whole paintings around a single thing whether that was an idea or a single picture or a single brushstroke, I spent a lot of time um, fussing just so that I could leave the part that I liked. But I rarely ever do that anymore.
1: Yeah. I
0: mean, there's a flip side to this, too.
1: Killing your darling might actually be like, well, I'm going to do it. Because fuck it. like, Because like, a, a conceptual killing your darling is like, well, why don't I just actually, instead of like hopping around it, just make it and then see if I hate it? Like, because if it's just an idea that's darling, and you're like, well, I like this idea, but you're like, oh, I'm I'm fussing over the how it's going to be, what's the thing? It's like, just order the fucking stupid-ass trophy.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I know what you're you mean. You're
1: out $5, um... like, you'll see it and then go, huh, well, it's dead now. Or, eh, maybe it doesn't.
0: Or it works, but... uh you know, that's a really convenient example because in the example have of... the opportunity to drown your baby in a bathtub. Well, it, it, when it comes to ready-mades, like there's very little um, of your time at stake. You just have to do an initial amount of research and shopping and then you get the thing and it either works or it doesn't. Um, I struggle with this a little bit in painting because it's going to take me time to get to the end state where it's worth doing or not. So I spend a lot more time in the ideation uh deciding whether it's a darling or not or rather whether it's worth pursuing or not because it's going to take me you know 40 hours or something to see if it worked oh. and if that if that's the trade-off I think a lot more carefully about whether to do it at all
1: Oh, you gotta work smarter not harder what's going on here
0: um well I I think I am doing a version of that it's just that I know what my t- m- what my technical wheelhouse is and w- what techniques I can apply to things and how long they'll take like sometimes that's not the case but for me most of the techniques that i use are laborious so if i'm going to do an image i think for a long time on the front end about these things
1: because
0: hmm. i'm not willing to invest 40 hours into something that's not going to work if i'm 80 percent sure that it'll work i'll try it and spend that time and you know that 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 means that some of that time it doesn't work and that sucks but you do it
1: hmm i i think if you're like over 51 it's worth a shot
0: yeah i no, i don't i just i just don't feel that way because like again my technical calculus is just different there is no shorthand way of doing really anything Uh, And that's just an organic development of my painting practice over time that I've settled on techniques that I like that work in different circumstances and the vast, vast majority of the time they are laborious. So that's just that wasn't a choice. Um, But I do know that. So it doesn't make sense to me to not take that into account. Um, I do realize that a lot of artists around me have made that not a problem for themselves by pursuing techniques that are deliberately less laborious so they can try more ideas out. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a fan of that philosophy. Mm. For me. Yeah. I respect it in other people that can make that work, but it doesn't work for me.
1: There's a way I mean, you do this with by taking photographs though.
0: Yeah, totally. So
1: it's not it's not fully My photography
0: practice is almost completely separate thing from painting.
1: Yeah, when you actually develop the film.
0: Yeah. After months. After months. <laughs> After months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After months. Well, you know, like, um, I don't know what's in here. Okay. I, I only mentioned it to her briefly, but I was telling you the other night that I was talking to a studio mate that I hadn't seen in a long time that I don't know very well. And so we just got into a long conversation, but she was asking about grad schools and stuff like this, and um Nobody I, should go to Zoom oh, University. Yeah, don't get me started on that, of course not. But it just came up over the course of the conversation that like I really feel like working in different mediums within art. Um is actually different disciplines that I don't think there is such a thing as overarching art. Like I am a painter and a photographer. I am not an artist. Those two things Mm -hmm. are the things that I tend to, uh, not that I tend to, those are the things that I'm most rigorously focused on. It's sort of like there is sports and then there's baseball and football. And it's like, occasionally there's a Deion Sanders or a Michael Jordan that can play both things.
1: Michael Jordan can't do two things. Well, he he played baseball and apparently
0: he badly. Was, he, you know he he didn't make it, but he was okay. You know, and like I, he I th- also golf's, sure, and he's pretty good at golf too. Um, you know how pro- tall are those clubs? Sorry, professional athletes are athletes, right? So they can probably be good at most things, but you have to train your body differently. Four different sports. So like when Michael Jordan played basketball, he had a totally different workout regimen than playing baseball. And he shifted into that gear when he w- was pursuing baseball and got better at it over the course of a year, year and a half. Right. I think it's the same thing with art mediums where your mind is totally trained differently to be a painter than it is to do anything else. And I don't like the idea of people that work in lots of mediums all the time. It's like, you can't possibly be good at any of those things. And I don't buy the idea that you can just be an overarching conceptual artist and rely on other people to sort of accomplish the technical tasks of your practice. That's a very traditional idea. It rejects a lot of recent art history. But I think that's interesting. And I would apply that to myself. Like, I think I only really think about painting and photography. I'm not really concerned about anything else. And I would never claim to be good at it. Um, And I don't think about those other mediums ever.
1: Hmm. You don't like a good sculpture every now and then? Big old lump of, lump of goopy? The
0: thing is is that it's very different as a viewer. As an audience member, it, it, again, to use the sports analogy, I can appreciate football and baseball and basketball and all of those things But equally. discus, you're like, eh, not so much. Well, Or or discus. like, But uh, you can appreciate the different athleticism and strategy and gameplay and narrative that goes into all those different forms, but it's much easier to be a viewer. You know how many fat men there are that buy um, NFL pro gear that have never played a game of football in their life but know every stat and every player and every strategy?
1: That's because they're, they are not actually dealing with any part of their emotional life, so they're learning stats. Well, that might, that might
0: be. I mean, I'm sure that they can tell you more about the 1997 NCAA championship than they could tell you about their own wife. Yeah, um, Yeah. 100%, but that's a bad thing. But, but no, but that just proves my point even further, that viewership is something different. I've, I appreciate and can view very well every form of art. But from the perspective of a maker, I think people need to be honest with themselves that if you're serious about what you do, you basically just specialize in a discipline. You, it's very, very difficult to be um, a an interdisciplinary polymath artist in the same sense that it's difficult to be a polymath generally. There's a lot of information out in the world right now. Like y- you mm. think, you, you know, you think back to even the middle of the 19th century, it was possible for a really smart, educated person to know almost everything. You could know almost the entire field of mathematics, of biology, of aesthetics, of philosophy. I mean, you could know all of that stuff pretty thoroughly all the way through. That's impossible now. Yeah. Um, that's maybe not a great condition. But I think it's a true condition, and I wish I wish artists were more honest about that. Like I, I think there's a lot of bad art out there because people say deny their names. Well, I can't even think of particular examples because it's so many people. Hmm. But people deny that there's any value in being specialized.
1: Wait, say that one more time. People deny that there's a value. In being I think specialized? P- I
0: should say I think people implicitly deny that there's any value in being specialized. I don't know if that's true. Well, I think that it is, because think about our grad school experience, for example. Yes, there was a lot of painters at Rutgers when we were there, but um, we happened to be the majority. But I think that the people that weren't painters felt very ghettoized and that this program was pretty retrograde for focusing so much on something so traditional and conventional. Like, that dialogue is still around, the idea that, you know, traditional plastic forms of art are sort of dead things and that you should just be interdisciplinary, you should be conceptual. Um, That's garbage that's not a good idea
1: hmm I mean it was a literal kind of segregation it was like oh you do things in space here you go go out in the country and here's your here's your shed but that's also a practical thing it's like here's a giant labs to do this go and too well, sweet. Go well and
0: I, I can offer like further historical proof of that, too, because like think about CalArts in its heyday in the 70s, 80s and 90s, like being the token painter at CalArts made a lot of people's careers because yeah. they had to put up with being the only traditional artist at a place that was like, no, fuck all of that normie shit. Yeah, we do performance and video and eating as art or whatever, you know, you can eat as art. Sure, you do it all the time. Fuck
1: <laughs> um, But you know, well, I was—I was like, "Excuse me." You know, that all—that model is also so dead. Like, I don't know. All—all—all all, all the old models are officially just shot in the foot.
0: Well, I'm not actually—I'm not actually sure that that's true. I've been—I've been peppering throughout this conversation, um, references to outdated things, mm-hmm. right? Being conventional or traditional, I said the word plastic art. A yeah, ago. I, I heard that and went U- uh, using taste as a criteria. Like I think that um, he's a Greenberg Greenberg dog whistler. I am. I think that I'm actually kind of like a like a trad formalist, in the same sense that people are trad cats.
1: <laughs> are you gonna start wearing like Adidas tracksuits and?
0: Uh, no, I'm gonna start wearing, wearing Burberry. I'm gonna start wearing pants that are up to my nipples and a monocle. Oh, you're going to do the And the smoking Barney. so many cigarettes that I can't even breathe. Yeah. Yeah. Barney style. But no, I, I honestly, I, I've come around to the idea over the course of this year that like, yeah, like with the disconnect that I'm feeling between art on social media and art at the level of finance and what I actually think art is, I think that the last time it was ever made was some point in the early 70s and that everything that's happened since then more or less has been some version of clout or money chasing. Um, And I don't think that that means that the agents in charge of making it like knew that or intended to do that. But I think that is true. Mm. And I don't think that anybody's tried to make real art in a long time. So resurrecting these sort of traditional terms anachronistically is all I have because I don't have the vision to like invent new territory. None of us do. But I want to get back to the place where people were trying to do that. Well, we don't know what the territory...
1: like. Let, let me rephrase that. We don't even have the map anymore. So the territory is out of sight.
0: Yeah, you're right.
1: So like, without the map, you, it's harder to get around. You're kind of climbing mountains and hoping you can see into the horizon, but like, there's a storm in the way, so it gets a little difficult to see where you got to go.
0: Well, that assumes that you're climbing around on real terrain at all, but I thought what you were yeah. referencing is the idea that the map and the territory have completely collapsed. There yeah. therefore there is no up or down. We're living in flatland, you know. There's really nowhere to go but laterally somewhere on a two-dimensional plane. Like there is no transcendence. You're just spreading out in every direction infinitely. Well, and closer I, analogy is a sandstorm. It's all flat. Well, no, because a sandstorm is a sandstorm is three-dimensional.
1: Yeah, but it blocks even even the f- even in the flatland like a in a dust bowl scenario, you don't know which way is
0: up well in a flatland you never know which way is up because there isn't one
1: hmm. I don't know geography that well or landscapes
0: well it's not a, it's not a question of geography it's geometry like a, a sandstorm in an actual environment is a three-dimensional experience the sandstorms happening above you and to you and down upon you but if you're following my analogy like you're not you're just existing as a dot on a flat surface. Mm-hmm. You don't have up or down. There is no sandstorm above you. There's nothing blocking your view. It's just that you can't see anything. Yeah, I think that that's our current also, condition. Also, your navigation is so, fucked. Well, maybe not, but, but everything looks like an infinite horizon. Mm. But therefore, you make no progress because everybody can spread out in every direction towards their own unique infinite horizon that they'll never reach. No progression is made collectively or individually at all. And so when I'm talking about this in terms of art, what I mean by sort of throwing back to, like, the formalist era is not that I'm an endorser of formalist art. I think that, like, Greenberg and the whole, like, post-abstract expressionist fallout made a lot of real mistakes in their conclusions. But I think that their pursuit was what everyone should be trying to do. You're trying to come up with a universal experience that actually communicates to a lot of people in a shared fiction of objectivity. Hmm. They took the objectivity very, very seriously, which was their mistake. But that doesn't mean that nothing has any meaning and that we all just pursue our own individuality. I'm not interested in people being like further atomized and alienated through their own pursuits of airbrushed horses. Um, you can try to make something really concrete that uses the language of the time that you live in, so I can't see past the horizon either. But I can indicate that that's where I am, hmm. and I think the only way of describing that has to do with anachronizing a lot of like uh, Who at this, did point, this airbrush horse terms. painting that you hate so much. I'm not going to name it. <sighs> this is a call-up podcast. It's I a person. Heard. It's a person I like. I have nothing against them. It's mm. just that. what's the point everybody everybody with any sense already knows listen i'm a fan of paint by number clown painting so like i don't my
1: taste level is very (laughs) low um and i actually i do actually think like there's something about a paint by number that i'm like kind of like oh that's a happy medium of a of a ready-made and a thing that you do but it is completely brainless but it is what we do already and like using a projector like, how, how much paint-by-numbering do you think you do on, a, on the regs? A lot.
0: Well, except that that template isn't provided to me by anyone except for me. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. So it's, it's different because it's um, an intentional decision. It's not a consumer product. But it could be. I think a lot of people that don't even trace their own paintings ultimately paint-by-numbers anyway. It's just by way of historical reference um, or reference of any kind. Hmm. One of the reasons that I like consider myself sort of an appropriation artist as much as I hate the, I don't know, the community around that term is that that's sort of meant to be a wink and a nod towards, yeah, I understand that everybody's just painting by numbers. So I'm going to make it obvious as a choice, not hide it under the surface as something I hope you don't notice, which is what most people do. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you want to end this episode? How long how long have we got? <laughs> 117.
1: Oh, you have any thoughts on Gavin Brown shutting down and joining Gladstone?
0: Uh no, I don't read Art World gossip because I don't care.
1: Well, you y- you don't like, you know, the Empire slowly uh, you know, forming into the New Republic. Ah, oh, jeez. Did you just make
0: a prequel reference? Yeah.
1: This episode's over. <laughs> <laughs>